Well, as always, thank you once again for listening to this Bible study podcast. I'm Randy Duncan, and in this episode, we're going to be covering Genesis chapter 33, which sees Jacob finally return to face his brother Esau after 20 years of being away. In the last episode, we saw Jacob wrestle with God and have his name changed from Jacob to Israel. And we also saw some of the preparations made by Jacob as his brother Esau approached with his 400 men. And that's where we're going to pick up the action here in chapter 33. So let's just jump right in in verses 1 through 3 read, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. And so here we are, the final act of this drama between Jacob and Esau. And as I mentioned in the last episode, the 400 men who are with Esau serve as a reminder to Jacob of the possible aggression that he's about to encounter. Again, 400 men was about the size of a standard militia in those days, so Jacob can't be certain of Esau's intentions. What was previously only reported to Jacob as Esau coming with 400 men, it's now about to become a reality. But one thing has changed since his encounter with God the night before. There's no mention of fear this time. In the last chapter, we read that when Jacob heard that Esau was approaching, that Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. But not this time. No mention of fear. No mention of stress or anxiety. Maybe he's more confident after the events that transpired the night before when God changed his name to Israel. But what we see here is that it's not the old Jacob who approaches Esau. It's the new Israel that is now approaching Esau. The day before, Jacob had divided his people and his possessions into two camps in case they had to run. It was simply a tactical move in case of flight. But now, he divides the two groups amongst his four wives in preparation to meet Esau. So this time, it's simply a matter of arranging the mothers and their children in order to meet Esau. And he does so in order of his apparent love for them or maybe even their social status, placing Rachel and Joseph at the very back so that they would be the last to be introduced to Esau. It sort of mimics the ascending order of value that Jacob arranged and the gifts that he presented to Esau. And after he has arranged them in order, it tells us that Jacob went on ahead of them. The new Israel is a leader. He's not a coward. And it also tells us that as he approached Esau, he bowed himself to the ground seven times. Now the Hebrew phrase there denotes touching your nose and your forehead to the ground in a prostrate position as a symbol of submission before a superior. And this bowing seven times, it's a well-documented practice of sort of a vassal to his Lord in ancient courts. And so Jacob greets Esau sort of like a vassal would greet a superior or a servant to his Lord. And in this act, there's also already a lot of irony with Jacob bowing before Esau. Because this is a complete reversal of the blessing that Jacob had received from his father Isaac 20 years earlier which said that Esau would bow to Jacob. Verses 4 through 7 continue. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, 
the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. And so for all of Jacob's fears, all of his anxieties, all of his worries, Esau runs to meet him and embraces him. And he kisses him. And they both wept. Can you imagine how Jacob must have felt? That sense of overwhelming relief, all of that pent-up worry and stress simply released. That sense of guilt that he probably carried for the last 20 years, he's able to finally let it go. You know, I've wondered how much more so all of us will feel those same types of emotions when we get to heaven, when we finally see Jesus face to face and he welcomes us home, when we see our loved ones once again. Revelation 21.4 tells us that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And here, Jacob experiences just a shadow of that joy and relief for the former things in his embrace with Esau have now passed away. You know, there's that old saying that time heals all wounds and Perhaps this is true here with Jacob and Esau. And although time might heal all wounds, the scars remain. The scars are still there. And just like scars on our body, they remind us that the past is real. There's also a saying that the only man-made things in heaven will be the scars on Jesus' body. Again, wounds healed, but the scars remain, reminding us of the past, reminding us that the sacrifice Jesus made was real. But before I move on, just a note here. Some people listen or they read the story of Jacob and Esau and they sort of get this mental picture that Jacob is the good guy and Esau's the bad guy. But the Bible never portrays Esau as a bad man. It's true that he didn't care as much about spiritual matters, at least not 20 years earlier. He's described as sort of a rough guy, you know, a man of the earth, a hunter. But he was also a devoted son one who honored his father Isaac. But Esau sees, of course, the women and the children with Jacob, and he asks him who they are. Notice Jacob's response. The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Jacob continues to address Esau in terms of an inferior in the presence of a superior, but Esau speaking to him just like he would a brother. Now, Jacob may have simply not wanted to take any chances with Esau, even after their emotional embrace. I mean, younger brothers were expected to show respect to their older siblings, but Jacob's language here, it goes well beyond that expectation. And then, of course, we see Jacob's wives and his children step forward, bow, and pay their respects as well. So Jacob has no doubt explained to them what they were to do, either out of respect or fear. And the way word travels, they would have almost certainly known why Jacob has just recently divided them into two camps. Verses 8-11 through 11 continue. And Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please, accept my blessing that is brought to you. 
because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. So we see Esau finally ask, you know, what's up with all this company that I met? I mean, why the droves? And Jacob responds to find favor in the sight of my Lord. And if you remember, honesty hasn't always been one of Jacob's strongest qualities. But here he answers very honestly to find favor in the sight of my Lord. And again, notice he's still referring to Esau as his superior. But Esau responds by saying, look, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. In other words, I'm doing fine. I don't need your gifts. Keep them for yourself. Notice again, too, Esau is still referring to Jacob as brother, which is in contrast to the way Jacob is referring to him. And I want you to pay attention to this, too. Esau's response here when he says, keep what you have for yourself, that may also be his way of subtly conceding his birthright to Jacob. I mean, you can almost see Esau with sort of a a slight smile looking Jacob in the eye and telling him the way this phrase reads in the Hebrew, let what you have remain yours. And only the two of them know what he is actually referring to. But Jacob pleads with Esau to accept his gifts. Please, if I have found favor in your sight, accept the presence from my hand. Notice that Jacob deliberately uses a different word for gift this time. In the English, this isn't so obvious or a significant change, but Jacob uses a Hebrew word, birkat, which is the same word for blessing, which is what Jacob stole from Esau. So what he is actually saying here is, please, if I have found favor in your sight, accept the blessing from my hand. And Jacob knows that if Esau accepts his gifts, then he has found acceptance. And so he presses Esau, please accept my blessing that is brought to you. Well, Esau finally does accept the gifts, but notice that he doesn't offer any gift or any blessing for Jacob. And so by not offering a gift in exchange, Esau indicates that he's accepted the gift as a payment for the wrong done to him by Jacob. And so their reconciliation is sort of finalized in this exchange. Verses 12 through 14 continue. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly, at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord and say here. And so, with their old score sort of now being settled, Esau says, let's be on our way. Let's, let's head home and I'll go on ahead of you. Now Esau may have assumed that Jacob was just on his way to simply pay him a visit. And so he suggests that they travel together as they head back home. But Jacob begins to tell Esau that, look, the flocks and the herds, the women and the children, they're going to slow you down. And, and so Esau, you should go on without us so that you and your men will not also be slowed down. And so we sort of start to pick up on, we get this first hint here, the idea that even though Jacob and Esau have just had this reunion, Jacob doesn't appear interested in traveling with Esau. Verses 15 through 17 read, And so Esau said, Well, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth and built himself a house and made booze for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkoth. 
So we saw Jacob begin to balk at the idea of traveling with Esau. But now Esau offers to leave some of his men behind to accompany them, to protect them on their journey. But again, Jacob sort of swerves this offer as well, saying, what, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. In other words, ah, you're too kind, Esau. Thanks, but I'm good. Now, Esau is probably catching on at this point, and I'm sure he was smart enough to realize that Jacob is just trying to politely turn down the offers that he's making. But it also makes you wonder a bit why Jacob doesn't want to travel with Esau. Although they've reconciled, Jacob is probably still just a bit uneasy. Maybe he had his guard up just in case Esau's welcoming was not genuine. And so, even though Jacob is certainly relieved and he's happy, he also thinks it's best if they just each go their separate way. As Dennis Prager has remarked, the brothers have buried the hatchet, so to speak, but they both know where the hatchet is buried. It then tells us that Esau left and returned to Seir. And with this, Esau sort of just rides off into the sunset of the Bible. This is the last we see or hear of Esau, except for just a brief mention at his father Isaac's funeral. And as Esau leaves and heads for Seir, Jacob leaves and heads towards Sukkoth. In other words, he's heading in a different direction. Jacob, or Israel as he is now known, will live apart from both Esau and Laban. He had no intention of meeting up with Esau and Seir. And so the last three verses of this chapter, verses 18 through 20, read, and Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. And so Jacob sets up camp just outside of Shechem. He doesn't go all the way into Canaan just yet, and this is intentional. And he stayed long enough so that it was necessary to, to buy some property, to build some booths and a house. This was his first purchase in the future land of Israel. And it's interesting because even though we don't know it yet, Joseph will eventually be buried on this plot of land. It also tells us that Jacob paid a hundred pieces of money for the land. The exact price is given. However, in the Hebrew, it says that he paid a hundred kesitah. The kesita mentioned here is an unknown unit of weight. It wasn't a coin because coins didn't appear in the Bible until later on. That was after the period of the monarchy. Now there's a tradition that the kesita means lamb because there was an extensive use of cattle that was used as a medium of exchange in these ancient times. But another tradition takes kesita to mean a piece of jewelry or some fixed weight, but we just don't know for certain. Jewish tradition says that Jacob stayed there for about a year and a half before crossing the Jordan into Canaan. And some people think that he may have just been using the natural resources of that area to replenish what he had just given away to Esau. But he built an altar there and he names it El Elohi Israel, which in Hebrew means God, the God of Israel. And so as we wrap up this short chapter, we've seen the change in Jacob from the deceiver he once was to a person who has been humbled, suffering under Laban for 20 years, someone who has wrestled and struggled with God, had his name changed to Israel, has learned how to speak the truth with grace. And we see Jacob, who was supposed to have his brothers bowing down to him, bowing down to his brother Esau. 
It's very humbling. But it's often during times like these where God sometimes humbles us so that we can then begin to be used by God. Proverbs 18.12 says, Before destruction a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Some of us are very stubborn, and we have to be brought to our breaking point in many cases, to, to have nowhere else to turn, to hit rock bottom in order to be humble, in order to be open to hearing God's voice. But if we do, if we humble ourselves before God, remember James 4.10, which says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. <laughs>